Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30? We're going to look at 1 Samuel 30, and I'm going to read most of this chapter for us this morning. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were with it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went on their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were with him left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and the 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. David and his men, they find an Egyptian slave who can direct them to where the Amalekites are, and we pick up in verse 16. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and his children away and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and has given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule of Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're here to hear from you. We want to hear your word read. We want to hear it preached and taught. We want to hear it in the lives of our friends that surround us right now. Would you take this word, would you warm our hearts to it, and would you change us and make us into the image of your Son, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, David has been in something of a free fall for some time now. It hasn't been 
all bad, but even the most hardened advocates of David who delight in him most have had to cringe in the last few chapters to see what's going on in David's life. Since chapter 21, David has done some nasty and some ugly things. We've watched this man after God's own heart, this man who has followed God and been anointed the future king of Israel. We watched him put his interests before the interests of the priest Ahimelech. We've watched him lose his temper over Nabal. We've watched him begin to collect wives for himself, to despair of his life, to murder and to take other people's lives, and then to tell lies and almost become a traitor. David, at least according to 1 Samuel, hasn't talked to the priest Abiathar since chapter 23, and we haven't seen him name the Lord, speak God's name on his lips since chapter 26. Even wicked Saul, who has departed from God, has done both of those things in chapter 28. You could begin to think about this whole period as a winter sleep in David's life, spiritually speaking. It's a time in his life where the warm pulse of his early faith, it begins to cool and David enters into this hibernating sleep. Yes, during this time, David still demonstrates faith. Yes, David still bears fruit. Yes, during this time, David still writes incredible psalms. But this is not the David we've seen before and it won't be the David we see after. This is not the David who stands and defies Goliath in the name of the living God. This is not the David that we're going to find who dances with abandon in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This is not the David who works with all of his energy to gather materials to build the temple. This is a very different David we find in the last 10 chapters, a beaten down and despairing David. Now friends, I wonder if you can relate to this. I wonder if you know what I mean by a winter sleep with respect to our Christian lives, I wonder if you've experienced in your own life this cooling between you and God. I'm sure you have. All of us have. These are times when it's very difficult for us to pick up our Bibles and read it with any kind of meaning. It's very hard for us to pray and to engage with God. I mean, forget doing anything like evangelism. It's hard for us to keep believing ourselves And sometimes when I'm feeling this cooling between God and I, I feel like I'm being driven in my cynical moments into this hibernation sleep. I feel like I'm being pushed there. I know that Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But my question is, why am I sweating so much? I mean, why is it so hard to take up my cross and to follow him? Why aren't there down days where I can put it down and follow something else? All of our winter sleeps are going to look very different from each other. For some of us, this is a very dramatic time of outright rebellion. We dive headlong into something that we think is going to satisfy us. We carry around in our lives very real addictions for some of us. And it feels like that once the moment the thermometer of our spirituality begins to cool just a few degrees, we lose all inhibitions, and we dive headlong into the thing we swore a thousand times we would never do again. For some of us, these winter sleeps are very much less dramatic. They're mundane. We go through the tedium of life, and we don't even give a nod upwards to the God that we serve. We experience this in very real ways. I appreciate what John said last week when he said, 
in our best moments, we're ready to confess our sins. We just wish we had new sins to confess. But when we enter this winter sleep, old and new sins, we're not interested in confessing either of them to the Lord or to speaking to him. I read recently a book, John Krakauer's memoir, Into Thin Air, and it's a phenomenal story. It's his telling of the Mount Everest expedition. And he was explaining that in his early life when he was young, he was a very avid and passionate climber. He dedicated a ton of time and energy into climbing. He loved it, but as he got older, that passion just kind of got crowded out by other things, as all of us have experienced. But he writes this in his memoir, just in passing. My hunger to climb had been blunted, in short, by a bunch of small satisfactions that added up to something like happiness. Now that line is haunting to a person like me whose hibernation sleep is very mundane and very simple. In my cooling toward God, what kind of small satisfactions are being added together to give me something like happiness? What am I experiencing and what am I doing when this happens? This season is going to look different for us and it's going to last different amounts of time. For some of us, we're speaking about an afternoon. For others, this is days or weeks or years or even a decade decade of feeling this cooling between us and God. Some of us, we are in that moment very now. It was very hard for us to get up this morning and to come together and worship with God's people. It was very hard to do this because we feel this distance and this cooling between us and God. If you have ever experienced that, if you are experiencing that right now in your Christian life, I tell you that you are joining every single saint who has ever lived. Every saint has experienced this, from from tempted Eve to laughing Sarah, from complaining Habakkuk to running Jonah, and even now to beaten down David. It is universal to feel a cooling between us and God in whatever time frame and shape that's going to take in our lives. Because that's true, because that applies to every single person, I want us to see what happens next in our passage. This is not everybody's story. This is David's story, but it is dramatic. Just when it looks like David is on the very precipice of unbelief, it looks like he could teeter either direction and fall like Saul into disbelief of God to walk out into the night and away from God forever, something very dramatic happens in his life. David was with the Philistines. He was up north, as we read last week. He gathered with them. He was rejected by them. And so he and his men began the journey down south. They traveled all day, every day, for three days to travel the 60 miles from Aphek to Ziklag. And when David returns and he finally gets home, rejected, exhausted, bone-tired, he finds that his home has been burned His wives are kidnapped, his possessions are gone, and his closest allies in the world are mumbling something about stoning him to death. You're watching David on this precipice, and he's teetering back and forth, and you wonder what this dramatic moment of suffering is going to do in his life, and if he will fall. I don't say this lightly at all, but I think suffering in this moment is is the best thing that could have possibly happened to David. I really do. Suffering is so galvanizing in our lives. It moves us towards Jesus or away from Jesus, but it won't let us stay in this no man's land of indifference and indecision. It drives us in a direction. 
We saw this in chapter 27. David suffered deeply and it drove him not to God, but away from God. In fact, he literally ran out of Israel and into the land of the Philistines. And David becomes like this inverted Jonah who is called to stay, but he runs away into a foreign land. But now when suffering happens, we see something remarkable. We read in verse 6, David strengthened himself in his God. The moment David has lost everything, he cannot claim a home, a land, a people, or possessions. He lays claim to the only one he can lay claim to, and that is the Lord, his God. This is David's God. Why does he do this now when he didn't do this in chapter 27? Why is his heart softened and warmed to God now in a way it wasn't when he suffered in chapter 27? What, what is going on here and what are the dyna- dynamics and how is he waking up from this winter sleep? Well, the Apostle Paul, he gives us a window into what happens in our hearts as believers when we suffer and he gives us a clue to this. If you want to keep your finger in 1 Samuel 30 and turn with me to Romans chapter 5, you can see this too. It's a very important passage for us as believers who suffer. Paul says in Romans 5, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. That's the gospel. We now have peace with God through Jesus. He goes on, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces hope, and hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Did you hear that, friends? Did you hear that a chief role of the Holy Spirit is to find us as a believer in our suffering and to lavish God's love personally to our hearts? That's what he does. That is so important for us when we come to a passage like this, when we're examining this text and we see David suffering again, and we think that if God were like us at about this moment in David's life and in our life, he would be throwing up his hands in frustration, right? He's seen David do so many things, so many wrong-headed things, and run in the opposite direction that suffering in David's life and in our life can feel like one big, I told you so from God. I don't want you to do this, and you keep doing this, and that's why you're suffering. If we thought that, if we began to think that God might be like us and share our frustration, this text shows us that we're absolutely wrong. God is nothing like us, and that might be the best news that we could possibly hear today. I want you to understand this, believer, that God takes every speck of suffering we endure. Whether that is self-inflicted suffering, we're enduring something because we have sinned, or that is other-inflicted suffering because someone else is hurting us, or that is naturally-inflicted suffering that we are enduring, he takes the full of it and he uses it to lavish his love in our hearts and to make us stronger than when we first believed. That's what Romans 5 is telling us. That is a chief role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And once we see that, once we see David's heart begin to thaw and it warms to God, we recognize that grace is all over this chapter. We see God's grace in ways that were hidden to us at first begin to appear and to manifest all over the place in this chapter. Look at a few examples. 
David, he inquires of God through Abiathar the priest. He goes to God in prayer and he asks God to give him uh, a clue as to what he should do next and where he should go. Now, Saul had just tried this in chapter 28 and God does not answer Saul. And it's a helpful reminder to us that God is not beholden to answer any prayer, but he does answer David in this passage. And that is an absolute grace in David's life. David, when he hears that he should pursue, he sets off. He's three days behind the Amalekites, and so he's playing catch-up. And he's in this desert wasteland that is below Ziklag, where there's no identifying landmarks. And he had to have no earthly way of finding this band and recovering his possessions. And then he happens upon a cast-off Egyptian slave who can tell David and his men exactly where they need to go to find this band. That is God's grace. David, he shows up with his men, utterly exhausted. He's totally outnumbered, and he wins a crushing victory over the Amalekites. That is God's grace. And then finally, we read in verse 19, nothing was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. And you mean to tell me that a pagan raiding party, they find this defenseless town, they descend on it, Ziklag, they burn it to the ground, they kidnap everybody, they steal all the possessions, and not a single woman or child has gone missing. That is an absolute grace from God. God's grace, it rises like a hot sun over the winter sleep of David's faith, and it thaws him to the core. David, a man who we haven't heard mention God on his lips since chapter 26, now exclaims in verse 23, the Lord has given these things to us. He has preserved us. How can David say something like that? How can he now have this whim of faith in places where it was a wasteland before? Romans 5, 5. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. David is waking from his winter sleep. Let's talk about where we've come. We've talked about a winter sleep. We've talked about this universal experience in the life of a believer where we feel this cooling towards God. It looks very different in all of our lives and it can last for very different seasons in our life and it happens multiple times in our spiritual lives. But all of us know what we mean by winter sleep. But we witnessed God's warming grace that he moves near to David, even in this winter sleep. And at the very moments that we think that God might be done with us, that we've demonstrated so much faithlessness and fruitlessness that he must be far from us, we discover, according to Romans 5, that he is nearer to us than we could have imagined. The last thing we need to point out in this text is that after the winter sleep and after the warming grace, we as believers will see signs of spring. God doesn't just want to remind us of himself. He wants to make us like himself. He wants to change us. He wants to bear in us good spiritual fruit as if we were vines attached to the branch that is bearing the good fruit that Christ is working in us. Once David begins to thaw, once he begins to warm, once he begins to wake up to God's grace in his life, you begin to see this spiritual fruit pop up everywhere in David's life. It's all over this chapter, a man who is responding to the grace of God in his life. I count 
eight examples in our chapter alone, and you might be able to find more, of places where David bears good spiritual fruit in response to God's grace. Here they are. Number one, he strengthens his hand in God. Number two, he runs to God in prayer. Number three, he shows mercy to the Egyptian. Number four, he moves into battle with great courage against serious odds. Number four, five, he forgives the 200 men who didn't go and fight with him. Number six, he counts everything that he had gained as a gift from God. Number seven, he makes merciful laws to Israel. And number eight, he is generous with the spoil that he receives. He begins sharing it with the elders in Judah. How do we know that David is warming to God's grace? How do we know that he is waking up from this winter sleep? We see signs of spring. It's everywhere in David's life. This fruit is being born in his life and we can watch it and identify it because David is waking up to the grace of God. A couple of weeks ago, our family went to lunch after church with a couple other families and we were at Chipotle sitting on the deck outside And as we're eating, I hear this blood-curdling scream from down the table, and my heart stops because it's our three-year-old Noah. And I'm wondering what on earth could be happening. And we all look down the table, and Noah is screaming, bird, bird, bird. And we kind of look at him, and sure enough, there's a little bird hopping at his feet, picking up crumbs. And Noah is just flabbergasted by these first signs of spring. Birds are approaching us. Spring is coming. Well, a couple of days ago, I let him out back to Rome. Sounds like a puppy. Uh, Opened the back door, let let Noah go out. I'm sitting at the dining room table. And once again, he screamed, blood-curdling scream, and I haven't learned my lesson. I jump up, I run out there. Noah, are you okay? What's going on? And he is at the top of the steps, screaming at the top of his lungs, lizard, lizard, lizard. And he has found his first lizard of the spring. Noah is waiting for these signs. He loves nature, and he spots these things. A text like 1 Samuel chapter 30 is going to train our eyes to spot signs of spring. We're going to begin to identify these things and see these things. This is absolutely critical. When you see a sign of spring in another person, a fellow believer, tell them that you see it. We need to be like little Noahs in each other's lives. When you see the first buds of fruit in somebody's life, a believer's life, tell that person with all the excitement you can muster. We come alongside of each other as fellow believers and we say, wow, friend, I see you being generous. And you're never generous. This is something that God is doing in you. He's working in you in incredible ways. Friend, when I shared this thing with you, you took it to God in prayer. I've never seen you pray. This is, amazing. this is God working something in you. Friend, you had the courage to confess your sin to me. I tell you that that is God's spirit working in you, drawing you out of darkness and into light. If you see signs of spring in another person, you tell that person because I promise you, if you don't, they will be the last person on the planet to see that thing in their own life. When you point out spiritual fruit in another believer, you are preaching the gospel to them. 
You are reminding them that in Christ, whether we sleep or slumber or hibernate or kick or scream or rebel, God in a world of tender-hearted kindness draws us back to himself and he forgives us of our sin and he changes us to look like himself. He forgives us and he changes us. He forgives us and he changes us. And we know this, we are sure of this, because he who began a good work in us will bring it to the day of completion. Let's pray together. Jesus, come quickly. Come and bring this to the day of completion. But I pray for every moment you tarry and do not come and appear before us that we will be a family that encourages each other, that wakes each other from these slumbers and reminds each other that your spirit is working in us to lavish your love on our hearts. Would we stir this in one another? Would we point out signs of spring in one another? Would we not forsake meeting together with one another until that great day where you bring this to completion. Do this in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.